This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. Tell me if this is familiar. There's this vision you have of yourself. It exists just slightly out there in the future. And it is this slightly polished, slightly more perfect version of who you are. You've somehow shed those temporary weaknesses you have. You you know, eat some of the stuff that you shouldn't eat. You exercise slightly less than you'd like to exercise. You don't call your mother quite as much as you know you should call your mother. Somehow this future you has transcended all of that. And you are loving. You're calm. You're expressive. You eat healthily. You're, you're, you're currently translating James Joyce's Ulysses into Mandarin because you just picked that up recently. It's this amazing version. And yet, even as you hold that vision in your mind, there's this version of you that exists in the here and now that keeps tripping you up, that keeps getting in the way, that keeps going for the quick fix and the easy win and the thing that feels good right now, even though you know it's not that good for you tomorrow or next week or in the longer term. Why does that happen? It happens to me. I bet you it happens to you as well. And I really wanted to dig into that because this ability to understand and connect to the sense of the future you, I think, is an essential skill around resilience. So I wanted to introduce you to Fina Venkatraman, who is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and a fellow at New America. Before joining the Globe, she served as a senior advisor for climate change innovation at the Obama White House and was the director of global public initiatives at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And she taught the program on science, technology, and society at MIT. She is the author of a book that I have truly loved. It's called The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. It is not only super smart, but it is beautifully written. And those of you who are regular listeners know that I love a well-written book. This is a well-written book, Um, which is probably why it's gone on to be named a top business book by the Financial Times and a best book of the year by Amazon, Science Friday, and NPR. Bina, so nice of you to join me here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Michael. Now, I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only person that gets seduced by the the temptations of the present and trades it off against the the benefits of the future. What why do we keep going for the quick fix like this? Well, it's only you. No, I'm joking. <laughs> it's not just you. It's it turns out to be all of us or at least nearly all of us. It's a universal habit to privilege the present over the future. And to some degree, that makes sense. Uh, But we are, we're always sowing the seeds of our later gardens. We're always doing things Mm. that implicate our future selves, whether we're conscious of it or not. And that's one of the key gaps. It's recognizing the connection between what we're doing now and the future. You know, I open my book first with a quote from the great thinker and writer, James Baldwin, but then with one from Homer Simpson, uh, (laughs) who says, I love this quote. That's a problem for future Homer, man. I don't envy that guy. It's kind of, to me, encapsulates the problem. It's almost like our future selves are foreigners to us. They're strangers to us. They're not, uh, 
people we recognize yet, even if we have those fantasies about being uh, wealthier, smarter, more productive in the future, we actually can't relate that well to our future selves. And surveys done of people in countries around the world, for example, have shown that most people's imagination of the future goes dark after about 15 years. So Mm -hmm. we can look ahead to some degree, but it starts to get murkier and murkier the farther we look out. So one of the challenges we have is that everything that is enticing to us in the present, everything that distracts us in the present from the future, whether it's that tasty looking pastry uh, on the donut counter, or it's the potential of a quick win at the roulette wheel in Las Vegas. All of that is really, we're experiencing it in the moment. We're taking in the sensory details. We can see that wheel turning and the colors. We can smell that pastry and almost sense it um, viscerally. But, For some reason, I'm really hungry right now, and I'm not quite sure why. I'm sorry I can't just send you a donut right now. I would I love know. to do that. Well, these, this era of social distancing is no good for uh, sharing treats. But That's right. And, of course, some amount of indulgence in what we want in the present is totally normal, natural human, and a lot of that indulgence is not so harmful to our future selves. But, on the other hand, there's a whole range of goals we have for our future selves. And those decisions we make in the immediate, not considering our future, can really get in the way of doing right by our future selves. So if you're hoping to learn a new language and you keep kind of indulging in the next binge show on Netflix and not studying that language, you know, eventually you're going to look back and say, ah, I didn't, I never made, made that goal happen. Uh, Whatever that might be. So I think, To a large extent, what we have to be able to do is to bridge this gap between our present self and our future self. Uh, One of the ways we can do that is to tune up or turn up, I guess, um, some of the vivid sensory details of that imagined future. So can we conjure that future um, either by using our imaginations to... um, paint a scene of a future that we want to have, um, literally paint it or paint it with words. Uh, one of the initiatives I wrote about uh, was an effort called Dear Tomorrow, where people write letters to their future selves or to yes. a future a child or a niece or nephew to be open in the year 2050. That particular project is focused around climate change, but one could do this for sort of anything and write a letter to yourself to be open when you're 70 and sort of try to envision yourself, you know, if it's by the rocking chair or if it's active and and sort of being as someone who's on walks um, and, and try to conjure some of those details. And it can do a lot, actually, to help define those decisions we're making in the present that affect that future person that is a stranger to us. Got it. You know, one of the things I'd love to check in with you on that, because I, I've heard of that approach. I've also heard of another way that that can get a little tricky, which is sometimes if you envision the positive outcome that you want too clearly, the brain goes, ah, you've already got it because you can see it so clearly. And actually it becomes a demotivator for action in the present. Some way, it's one of the ways that vision boards sometime diminish the quest because you're like, look, it's already there. I have a picture of my you know, ideal partner or house or car or whatever it is for you. I'm wondering if you've got a perspective on that or whether I've just made that up. Well, you know, the cognitive science is complicated on thinking about the future, and I I haven't seen a study that explicitly discourages that kind of, you know, visioning of the future. But what I will say is that I think it's incredible 
incredibly important based on the research I've done to also envision negative scenarios in the future, to not sort right. of turn a blind eye to the potential for bad things to happen. Now, this is That's not something a lot of us, particularly I will say Americans, being an American myself, we're, we tend to be um, maybe overly optimistic sometimes about what's possible in our future. There are studies that show that we overestimate how long our marriages will last or how wealthy or successful we'll be. So mm-hmm. it's just as important that we be able to conjure scenarios of the future where things have gone wrong, where we failed. And we often kind of want to sanitize those possibilities. I mean, we're actually seeing that in our country right now with some of our leaders, our business leaders, or our political leaders who don't want to think about the coronavirus pandemic being a problem in the fall. So they're just sort of not contemplating that scenario or pretending like it's not right. going to happen. Yeah, And that's a real danger, right? It's a danger in our personal lives too, if we don't kind of anticipate what could go wrong. So I would say the ideal way to do this is to picture at least two scenarios when you're trying to think about making decisions on behalf of your future self. Picture a very positive one, picture a negative one, and then walk back to the decision points between now and the future that might make a difference. Yeah. One of the I mean, I love uh, that's really helpful kind of seeing both the the dark and the light side of the future and then kind of going, well, if, if that to be true, what what would happen and walking back from that and seeing a path unfold. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the way that we can get waylaid by vulnerable decision points, <laughs> moments that kind of were particularly easily swept aside from our good intentions. And you talk about one of the strategies for dealing with that is to increase a sense of agency. Can you tell me what you mean by a sense of agency? Sure. So vulnerable decision points include moments where we have really low bandwidth for dealing with the situation, whether we're under pressure for time or money, uh, or we just feel an emotional sense that we have to act right away. And one of the contexts I looked at for that was the way that doctors prescribe antibiotics in a setting where patients are really eager and anxious for some sort of solution to their sickness. They want to get better. The doctors got back-to-back appointments all day under a lot of time pressure and therefore more likely to make a sort of more short-sighted decision to just write that prescription. And we know that over time that builds up to a lot of inappropriate prescriptions, which has increased the risk of drug-resistant infections known as superbugs. So that's very- This is a very compelling chapter, I thought, around just how- precious uh, antibiotics are and how the over prescription of them just absolutely doesn't work in the present and also diminishes the impact that they'll have in the future and also releases a whole new <laughs> new level of superbugs that will cause us great harm in the future. Yeah. And you know, these are everyday decisions we make to have vulnerable decision points. So, uh, you know, for example, if you talk to investors that look at their portfolio uh, too often during the day, and if they see it dip below a certain threshold, they will tend to sell off certain investments or stocks because they're worried. But a lot of those, that's a lot of short-term noise that's affecting them and making them panic, right? Basically, they have what's known as loss aversion in the cognitive science literature. And they react to those short dips. And studies show that, uh, investors who look less frequently at their portfolios as a result uh, will amass more earnings over time because they're not reacting in those vulnerable decision points uh, when the pressure seems like it's on. Uh, Now, the other context I looked at for this was when teachers um, are disciplining students. And particularly in the United States, there's a pattern 
of teachers disproportionately disciplining students of color, so Black Mm -hmm. and Latino students in particular. And that sort of adds up to quite a problem in our public school system where you have uh, Black and Brown students going more often to the principal's office and as a result, getting suspensions more often. And as a result, that really affecting their graduation rates, um, their um, regulation rates directly correlated to who ends up in prison and who has a good life and who doesn't have a good life. Absolutely. So one of the places that I looked at was a middle school in Oregon where a principal named Kathleen Elwood uh, was trying to figure out how she could intervene in these moments when teachers are under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. Uh, There's a kid being disruptive in the classroom. Maybe you want to discipline that student. Maybe you want that student to know that that behavior is not okay, but you don't want to have a sort of overreactive, impulsive decision at that vulnerable moment and just send the kid to the principal's office because that's going to escalate things in a way Mm -hmm. that may be disproportionate to what's actually happened. And so one of the methods she tried, which University of Washington researchers sort of suggested and have been studying in a number of contexts, is to have the teacher be able to do something like uh, make an advanced plan. Uh, and these are known as if-then statements. Uh, and right. um, NYU professor named Peter Galwitzer has studied these. And basically what it means is you make a decision before you get into that vulnerable moment and you decide what you're going to do when you're in that moment. So if you're a teacher and you know that you're always kind of at your the end of your rope at sort of after <laughs> right. the lunch hour or right before it when you're hungry and that you're more likely to kind of get into a head-to-head confrontation with particular students at that time. Well, you tell yourself something like, if I'm feeling irritable, if I'm feeling exasperated with a particular student, if this student speaks up in class, then, so this is where the then part of the if-then comes up, then I will drop my pencil and I will count to three before I react to what the student has done in my classroom. Or uh, if yeah. if the student speaks out of turn, then I will um, take a deep breath, uh, ask the student you know, a question, and then decide what to do. So these kinds of statements, right? Basically, it's, it, it is a way of claiming agency or choice. It's basically saying, I'm going to make an advanced plan before I get into that vulnerable and emotional moment where I'm likely to make an impulsive decision. And we can do it in our lives too. You know, if there's someone who gets on your nerves a lot and you end up making yeah. impulsive decisions, if there's a situation where you know you're going to be tempted to uh, overindulge in just like a little bit too much wine or not, <laughs> exactly. not speaking from personal experience here at all. But yeah, um, but you've heard of other people heard, who do that. Yeah, there are rumors <laughs> afront. Uh, yeah, on the, sorry, there are rumors afoot. Yeah, people, such people. But um, but you know, if you make one of these advanced plans, if I feel tempted, then I will do this. It can help you when you get into that moment. I'm I'm using your tactic even as we speak. So one of the consequences of uh, being at home is that my wife, who was already a great baker, is now baking more than she's ever baked in her life. I'm so she sorry. Turns out, she turns out this great sourdough bread. And I'm like, I turns out I have the capacity to eat an entire loaf of sourdough bread every single day if I put my mind to it. Or actually, if I don't put my mind to it. So I, I, I set up an if-then, which is if I've already had one slice of sourdough bread, which is what I'm trying to limit myself to on a day, if I have a craving for a second uh, slice, I do 20 push-ups. 
And if I still want to have a slice wow. of bread, but it, quite frankly, I can barely do 20 push-ups, so I'm exhausted at the end of that. So it kind of the, the desire goes away. I am very impressed. And you know what's so good about your adherence to this tactic? You're using it very well because it worked. <laughs> it works much better when you say something affirmative. So it's better for you to say, if I'm tempted to have the second piece of sourdough, then I will do... 20 push-ups, that w- tends to work better across these experiments, which, by the way, have been done in hundreds of contexts, yes. thousands of people, than if you were to say, if I want the second piece of sourdough, then I won't look at it. Right. Because uh, it's the sort of negative scenario. Instead of taking a proactive, again, it's about agency and giving yourself, thing, yourself some other alternative plan to exercise in that moment. Now, to set up an if-then statement like that, it's actually the third part of a process that, A, requires you to understand the 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 gap between what you aspire to and what actually happens, and then to understand where you might be vulnerable in terms of defaulting back to the old way of working rather than the aspirational way of working. And only then do you get to the, the if-then piece. And... Part of what I think that requires, Bina, is some sense of well awareness of those two factors. And I go to a couple of places. I go to a reading research about how judges make worse decisions in the afternoon because they're tired and a bit hungry and a bit grumpy. So you're more likely to be sentenced favorably if you're sentenced in the morning rather than the afternoon. And also the, um, the wonderful book, The Checklist Manifesto, um, which talks about how surgeons make mistakes but are reluctant to use a checklist because it somehow casts aspersion that they're not the godlike creature that they'd like themselves and everybody else to believe. How, do you have any insight around how you help the people who might be a little oblivious to either the, the aspi- aspirational future sense or the, the sense that they do actually have vulnerable decision points to become more aware of that? Absolutely. I think you've uh, hit an important problem on the head, which is that this is very hard for a lot of people to do individually, independently. And when it comes to trying to do things aspirationally in our society, whether it's discourage violence, promote general peace, uh, promote uh, taking care of each other, um, we do rely on community norms, rely, rely on institutions to help us do that. And I think when it comes to better imagining the future and doing right by the future, uh, we need that as well. We need support and reinforcement from our social groups, from our communities, from our institutions to help us do this often, especially when the ultimate goal of thinking ahead is to do something in service of the collective or society, like problems like fighting off superbugs or better educating youth or climate change. So I think one strategy is within organizations, for example. So uh, within primary care offices uh, where doctors and nurse practitioners are prescribing antibiotics, Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at some of the studies, the research around that, There are interventions that don't require the doctor, per se, to have an awareness that they need to do something better. So uh, one such intervention involves creating a pop-up in an electronic health record system when the doctor is about to prescribe the antibiotic, and that pop-up will 
essentially ask for a justification for the prescription. So it's kind of working with the fact that uh, you need to interrupt that moment. You need to kind of create a buffer to the impulses of the person in that moment, but you can't necessarily rely on the person in that moment to be able to take that extra deep breath and drop the pencil and make the decision because of the context that they're in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to, for example, getting low-income people to be able to save for their own future, this is another uh, area where people need support in order to be able to do it. So if you're in a situation in your life where you're just struggling to put food on the table, uh, where you're really struggling to make ends meet, it's going to be very difficult for you to invest and save in your own future or to take the time to sort of imagine yourself in these future scenarios. And I think we have to recognize that for some of the poorest members of our society. Now, some innovative ways around that have come to the fore in recent years, including a method known as prize-linked savings. And uh, I will say, while I said in recent years, this is an idea that dates back at least to immediately after the Second World War in the UK uh, through a program known as premium bonds. And the basic notion is you create a way for people to create savings accounts that also allows them to play a sort of lottery, uh, a lottery where they can't really lose. So they put in some amount of money. Which is the essential part of this, which is a lottery that you can't really lose. It's like you either win by saving or you really win by earning a little bit more money on top of that. Exactly, right. Unlike the current lotteries that are run by states and companies all around the world, which are really Where regressive taxes. Loses. Right, yeah. and they're regressive taxes because they're mostly played by the poor. And yep. you can kind of understand why that happens, right? Because sometimes if you're so far in the hole, you're so far in debt, the idea of putting a few dollars in a savings account doesn't seem to be a bridge to yeah, that imagined point? better scenario, right? You feel like you need to make up this huge shortfall. So the only thing that makes sense is to win really big. Yeah. And it's in that sort of psychology. So I think these kinds of um, savings accounts where they take some of the interest and put it into a common pool and then hold a monthly or biweekly uh, cash prize drawing have shown a lot of promise in getting people to actually save for their future. So I think we can't always depend on individual people to be able to do this, particularly when it comes to some of those intractable social problems. We need we need ways around it. One of the uh... One of the things that this story reminds me of is um, you talking about your experience of visiting Las Vegas and understanding the strategies of poker players, the really good poker players, ones that make a living from the game. Because in that tension we just described about, look, (laughs) I may as well go for it. I may as well try and win big because otherwise what's the point? That's exactly not the, the goal of the professional poker players. So... How do these people, as these kind of outliers of of restrained gambling, how do they self-manage? Because they, they're constantly playing towards a future sense of self. Yes, I found it really fascinating to spend time with these pro poker players, in part because they just so defy the stereotype of the sort of Las Vegas gambler. And part of it really is this idea of peer groups and social norms. So the poker players I talk to, the vast majority of them, I will say there are exceptions. They're sort of people who come onto the scene and are really have a lot of um, sort of brashness about them in the way they play. But, But a lot of them, the vast majority of these 
men and women who are making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year playing poker, so it really is a profession, uh, they tend to sort of reinforce this norm of slowly grinding away to learn the craft, uh, taking uh, losses and, and working your way through a tournament, not making sort of big, grandiose plays, especially early on in one's career, early on in a tournament, so that you can amass enough chips, amass enough earnings to keep in the game and keep playing. Uh, I also found that some of the best players, including one named Matt Matros, who's been a World Series of Poker champion uh, multiple times, uh, did have strategies like what we talked about with the if-then strategy used by Mm -hmm. the teachers and involved... uh, anticipating situations they might face at the table. So situations where there's someone playing against them who they just really don't like. Uh, they call this sort of vendetta poker when when there's some, right. someone with an ego. Like, I will crush you. Yeah. Right, right. You've got a little bit of a, a, a thing going on, a rivalry with someone, and you're likely to make not so great decisions, uh, particularly if you're a player who plays kind of by the odds, by the math. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matros, this particular player has a math degree from Yale. And so he is very much about playing the calculated best uh, way in every scenario, in every hand, he's trying to figure out what is what is the highest probability of him getting out of this um, in a good way, in a favorable way for, for yeah. the tournament. And, and so he sets up these situations in advance in his head. If I'm at the table and I face this kind of scenario with this kind of player, this is what I'll do so that he can sort of have some sort of strategies, advanced strategies for w- those moments he faces at the table. But I will say again, that I really do think that a lot of this comes down to how these People kind of work together in a way. They're all competing against each other. But the culture they've created is one in which it's not cool to make sort of rash decisions at the table. It's much more uh, admirable the way they talk about each other. Uh, They sort of celebrate the players that are what they call grinders who slowly build build their way into being winners. One of the things that that just that piece, I I was reminded of – the, the marshmallow test. And you talk about that a lot at the start of the book because it's famous. Lots of people have heard of it. And it's less famous for having been debunked three or four or five different ways as an indicator as much of class and all sorts of other things as it is um, a sense of actual willpower. And my, my brain went to uh, a, an interesting hypothesis around what the marshmallow test would be like if you did it with other kids in the room. So it's not just you alone in a room trying to resist the temptation, but it's you with a group of other kids in the room trying to resist the temptation and how the peer pressure piece would work around that. Well, actually, there was one such example of a marshmallow test study, at least one that I know of, uh, where kids were told uh, basically what other kids did. So kids were put into right. groups where they wore certain color t-shirts and say uh, I'm a kid wearing a red t-shirt when I go in to have the marshmallow test administered to me which is for anyone who doesn't know who might be listening um, this this idea that you can take one treat right away that marshmallow or cookie or if you wait for an indefinite period of time you don't know how long and you're a toddler there waiting you can get a second treat. So, and it was used. It was used basically as a litmus test of whether a kid was capable of delaying gratification. And we know it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, in the experiments, experiments done with kids who had uh, certain color T-shirts and were told what 
the kids in their peer group did, uh, they tended to, at a higher rate, do what kids uh, who had wore the allegedly, same allegedly in the same t-shirt color exactly, were doing exactly right. and i i find it actually promising that that's the case uh, because of course there are negative impacts of peer influence sure. we can all point to from from kids and teenagers and how they grow up but i think what's really interesting about this is that you know we tend to think of our ability to delay gratification our ability to think about the future and invest in our own future as some sort of inherent innate trait that we either have or don't have and that some kids mm-hmm. are just sort of doomed to failure because they don't do well at the marshmallow test they're not going to get good sat scores that was sort of the i think popular popular yeah. portrayal of those original eat, eat a marshmallow never go to law school it's as <laughs> simple as that <laughs> right right i think some popular conclusions were made around those tests uh and i think what's so interesting about the study of the peer groups um wearing the same color is that there is this power to influence each other in fact for the good for encouraging waiting um and and similar ways of kind of helping encourage positive behavior have been used, for example, to get people to buy into cleaner energy. So an energy company in the Black Forest in Germany uh, used a sort of method of peer pressure saying, you know, all your neighbors are are buying into this cleaner energy, even though it's more expensive uh, to, to encourage people to, to buy that right. energy. Uh, it's done in hotels. You may have experienced this where sure. they'll say, you know, most of our customers- I remember hotels. Just right. a memory, but I remember them. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. It's like one of those things where uh, it's it's hard to relate to our past selves now, right? We're like actually, <laughs> right. we can't relate to our future or our past in these coronavirus right. times. So, yeah, I mean, this is great. Like the the in the hotel, having the most guests don't have their towels washed more than once every three days. But you know, feel free to leave your towel on the floor if you're if you insist on having your towel washed more often. Right. And how that influences influences people's behavior around that. Right. And it, too, in a sense, it's sort of changing what the default is, right? Like, what's our default expectation? And that's one right. thing about this pandemic that I think is really interesting, right? It sort of provides the opportunity to hit the reset button on some of our default habits and cultural norms. So I would never have wished this pandemic to be the way that we did this. But the fact that, you know, more companies and more people are thinking about how they commute uh, or thinking about whether it's necessary to sort of travel by car and plane, you know, and finding creative ways around that is going to change our default and sort of what the cultural norm is. And I think that that has promise. I don't think it's the whole solution to our environmental problems, for example. But I think there's something about being able to shift basically what our expectations are of ourselves that will be helpful for whatever policies and politics uh, we need to sort of deal with these larger problems like climate change. Bina, let me, let me springboard off that and ask you a question that's related in a way, which is dealing with, let's call them negative emotions, f- dealing with fear and despair and anxiety and uncertainty. And how so often, I think anyway, those emotions can be the uh, underlying current of those vulnerable decision points that we were talking about earlier. Um, You know, when we're feeling despair, we're probably more vulnerable to making poorer, shorter term decisions. Is Is there any insight you have around 
managing that? Do we try and suppress it and force it down? (laughs) I don't feel the feelings. Is there a way we step into the feelings and process them? Is there any insight you have around how emotional management can help us stay the course? Yes. And I think you're right to point out that when people feel that doomsday is coming, they tend to turn away from the future. There's some research suggesting that uh, when people are in active military and, you know, kind of deployed in war zones, they'll privilege the present even more. And I think that is certainly true when we sort of see how people behave with respect to sort of dismal predictions of the future. So I think it's really, again, this kind of comes down to agency. So uh, is it possible to look at futures, including negative futures, uh, but to do so not only with despair and anxiety, which are normal emotions, which are acceptable emotions, but to also do so with a sense of agency, a sense of how one as an individual or one in in a community or society can make an impact impact on actually changing the course of events to see the future as not sort of already written, but as something we're writing. And I think it's really, it's not the right answer to suppress the despair or the anxiety we feel about the future now. I think it is the right answer to think about ways or places where we can have agency, even if it's a small amount of agency to do something positive, uh, to shape us, I guess, to shape society towards the positive future that we want. So, Bina, if people are feeling a sense of agency and wanting to find out more about you and the work you do in this world, because this has been a fantastic conversation, where can they find out more about you online? Uh, I have a website. It's writerbina.com. I'm on Twitter. It's my first name, B-I-N-A, J like juice and V like vampire. So Bina JV at Twitter. Um, and, you know, I'm around. Um, the Globe editorial pages are another place to find me, Boston Globe. Perfect. Bina Venkatraman, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. This was great fun. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free, video-based course where... I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.